This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. All right, so welcome back for another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Carrie Borkowski, and I am with Danielle Scarana. Hello, Danielle. Welcome. Hello. And I am excited, nervous is maybe also a word that's in there to to introduce our guest today. No, I'm super excited. Friend and good colleague, Dr. Laura Shaw. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. I don't know why you're nervous. I'm nervous, but, <laughs> but I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, because you're super smart and I just am excited to hear what you have to say about this topic. So, um, and you're cool with just Laura, right? We don't need the formality of Dr. Shaw, even though you earned that oh, degree. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, cool. No. So just to give the audience a little background, um, Dr. Shaw is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins School of Education, extensively trained in family systems therapy and educational neuroscience. She ha also has direct experience as a head of school within the AMI-based Montessori School Framework. She instructs in the Mind, Brain, and Teaching certif Certificate and the Doctor of Education online program. Laura's work has focused on translating research from multiple areas of neuroscience, ed psych, sustainability, education, and family systems into school design and classroom practices. She has particular interest and expertise in translating current applied and computational neuroscience research. Hopefully she'll explain to us what in the world that is, um, especially approaches featuring a sensory motor and ethologically oriented perspective and applying large scale dynamical systems frameworks to sociocultural contexts. Recontextualizing common terms such as executive fun function and attention are areas of particular interest, especially in relation to issues of race, class, neurodiversity, and behavior, including traditionally disadvantaged students living in poverty. So again, thanks so much, Laura, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. So, so as you, I think, you know, Laura, cause we've talked about it a little bit and our audience is familiar because Danielle and I did a introductory podcast this season, we're focusing on leadership and belonging. And in particular, we're focusing on this notion of paradox and paradoxical leadership. So these ideas, of course, as you know, that there are you know, these seemingly conflicting narratives that we wrestle with. And, you know, from talking with our students and many others that often elicit great discomfort and stress and anxiety and all those things. And so when we were thinking about guests to come on the podcast, we were thinking, of course, of leaders, but we were also thinking 
of, and, and you're a leader in your own right. I don't mean to say it that way, but we really were interested in having you on because of your expertise and perspective around, you know, things like ed psych and neuroscience, because, you know, while I can't, I don't think I'll ever understand the intricacies of what's going on with all of this. I really want to dig in and Danielle, and I really want to dig in with you, like what's going on with learning and mindset and habits and what is what's going on with the brain and our learning when we face these multiple narratives that create discomfort and what are some of the strategies we can use to almost really transform right change create new habits i guess or mindsets that bring us to manage better these paradox and and I don't know, Danielle, if you saw that face that Laura just made, um, <laughs> the wondering. <laughs> I did. Um, and that's exactly why, um, you know, one of the many reasons I wanted to bring you on, Laura, is because I want to try to make better sense of what this is, right? <clears throat> we know that the literature tells us that when we're able to manage this discomfort and see those multiple narratives and create belonging, that good things happen. But I really want to understand what's going on with the individual. And, and then I'll be quiet. I'll say one more thing to me, more importantly for us and our audience is what are the strategies? Like it's all good and fine to say this thing is good to start learning how to manage, you know, discomfort and multiple narratives, but like, what can we do as humans to take that first step, right. To start managing those. So I'm not sure. I, I was thinking about your husband, Greer, Laura, this morning when I was prepping because he's an attorney and I was thinking I'm doing exactly the opposite of what an attorney would say to do, which is I have lots of questions and I don't have any answers. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, but actually, yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, I don't I was, know. I don't know if we start from the simple question of, can you give us a little background on things like what does it mean to talk about learning, for example? I don't know, but you pick where you want to start and, and I'll, and I'll take, I'll follow your lead. Okay. Well, I, I feel like, the, I mean, these are, so there, there's, I think multiple questions within what you just said. And one of the biggest questions, and this is the question that philosophers have been struggling with for thousands of years is, um, is, I think dealing with this space of um, ambiguity, right? The ambiguity of existence that Simone de Beauvoir talks about. And we, it, it seems as if that we as, as humans are very uncomfortable with ambiguity. And so we, we create binaries, we create, mm. create polarities, yeah. right? And that's a lot easier for us our, and, you know, I guess you could say our, our brains, but meaning isn't just, um, I, I, I don't, you know, when we create meaning in our mind, I don't necessarily equate mind specifically with brain. So mind is a whole lot, depending on who you're talking to mind, um, also involves the body. It can involve the, the context, how you use the context, you know, that kind of thing, but how we, how we, create meaning in order to guide our lives, we, we tend to oversimplify things. And so we we're not comfortable with a paradoxical mindset because it's much, much easier to live in one part of the binary. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, 
you know, an example of that is, so I'm a, a Montessorian. Uh, so in, in the Montessori community, there's very much a belief. And I, I believe this as well, that Montessori is a particular pedagogy that really is very embodied by nature and allows children to flourish and uh, is really good for children. And in fact, Dr. Montessori really felt that by creating these specific environmental conditions where the children have agency over their own learning, that they were not in tension and in conflict with adults. And that would actually lead to um, essentially kind of habits and, and behaviors and ways of being in the world that were going to lead to a more peaceful society, mm. right? So we, we really, you know, get behind this. We really believe this. On the other hand, we have a lot of issues in our Montessori community, mm. some of which are around <clears throat> kind of deterministic beliefs about development. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are around we have expectations for the children in the classroom on the one hand, but we don't live by those same expectations as adults in the community on the other hand, mm. right? <clears throat> and when you try to bring up these other pieces, it becomes like you're going against all of the good stuff. And it's like, no, you can hold these pieces in your mind simultaneously at once. Mm -hmm. But that is a very uncomfortable space because I think ultimately what we're comfortable with is knowing. Mm -hmm. And so, so when you were talking, Carrie, when you were saying, you know, I don't really have, I don't really have answers. I have more questions. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what I try to, to talk to our students about is that as they go through our doc program, they're not going to have more answers. They're not coming, you know, they're not. And a lot <laughs> of times the, you know, students Can't will play. come particularly, <laughs> right. Particularly yeah. though with, um, the, in the mind brain teaching specialization, right. There's this very kind of perspective and not obviously not all, every student holds this perspective, but I have heard students talk about this and I've seen this in educational neuroscience outside of our program. So it's kind of in the field as a whole where people want to be able to have the answers and they think they're going to get the answers to teaching and learning from neuroscience research, because that's, you know, it's like, look, um, the brain lights up when this thing happens and that shows that emotions are real. Okay. Well, but you know, but I have a question. Why do we need that to show that emotions are real when we experience emotions every single day and we see them in our students? So why are we actually, why have we minimized emotions mm. and, and, you know, um, made rational thought the thing. And like, there are more questions. These are not answers. This is not providing us with, this is going to tell me what to do. And in fact, I ask students all the time, what exactly do you think this neuroscience research is going to tell you what to do in practice in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Right. That so ultimately, and, and particularly in educational neuroscience, which is still a really young field, there are just more questions. You have more and more questions. And it's to me, it's actually better to have questions because once you think you do know the answers, then you stop learning. Mm -hmm. Right. And and one thing that we do know for sure, I think, of course, maybe I could be wrong, but is that change is constant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we think we know now 
can change tomorrow in light of new information, in light of new circumstances, in light of, um, you know, a meteor hits the earth in a particular way and <laughs> something. I don't know. Changes. We have a global pandemic or something, right? We have a global pandemic. Exactly. Maybe, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and actually, so there's some, um, in cognitive, well, actually, no, sorry, I shouldn't say it's not cognitive science, but more in, um, it came out of um, economics. So Daniel Kahneman has yeah. wrote a book years mm -hmm. ago called Thinking Fast and Slow. One and so he's favorites. talking about this, this very thing, right? Which is mm -hmm. sort of like the, 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 and I cannot remember, I can remember which is system one, system two, but there's, you know, two systems and one is, thinks very fast and is more automatic and one thinks um, more slowly. And the one that is more slow requires a lot more effort, conscious thought. It requires a lot more energy also for, if you were to equate that with the brain, but it would require more energy from the brain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it doesn't really feel as good mm. because it's, it, it's more work. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to go with the thinking fast and not necessarily enough with the, the, the thinking slow yeah. and, you know, and on top of it, I think our society doesn't really allow us the time to think slowly because we're, we're a capitalist yeah. neoliberal yeah. <laughs> society. The list goes on and on it, and it on, does. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. And now, as you were talking, I have 17 questions and <laughs> Of course, which is an amazing way to be right now in a podcast interview, especially as you're saying, as we are learning more, we have more questions, but you talked initially about, obviously, um, I just lost my train of thought. Let me just give that, let me get back what it was. Oh yes. Okay. Okay. So you talked about this binary thinking initially. So my first question for you is, are we naturally, just to clarify, are we as people with our brains naturally predisposed to think in a binary way? And then as you're talking to, you mentioned Kahneman's book, I was thinking about it. Your bio talked about executive functioning, which I'll get into and in maybe another question. How can we cultivate this then? Are we able, thinking about the research on neuroplasticity, are we able to then expand our thinking? And how difficult is it if we are, you know, employing uh, strategies of effort or even just drawing on research of Anders Ericsson with deliberate practice? And then you're also piling on top of social society that's not enabling us to think in an effortful, in a slow way. So first is clarify, are we naturally dispos disposition for binary thinking and how do we, how likely is it to expand beyond binary thinking? Well, I think, and I think that's a good question. Um, I think, I, I think that um, we, we are, you know, predisposed to it. It doesn't mean though that that is, 100% how every person is, is going to be, because there are people who are more naturally kind of, um, well, I guess you could kind of say skeptical, but they're a little more inquisitive or they're a little more willing to kind of live in a space of ambiguity, but a mm. lot of people are not. So I don't want to say it's a, you know, definite like, yes, for every person. Um, but I do think that that is, you know, like Kahneman has said, it's, it's sort of the, 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 um, the fast system seems to be the more comfortable system. 
mm. for us. And I think what we, you know, we may have also done is, is kind of created structures that reinforce that in some ways, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so something to consider, but in terms of whether or not we can move beyond that, I think we absolutely can, but that requires a lot more conscious for full thinking. Um, and, uh, being, being able to, um, you know, just like, for instance, you know, it, it always strikes me it's so interesting when you have people who are, um, really educated, super smart people, right. And then they, they hear something and, um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll speak from the experience of having been a school leader, right. Because the gossip among the parents would just be unreal. And we had really bright people in our community, you know, cause I'm in near Pasadena. So, uh, Caltech scientists, JPL scientists, um, you know, lawyers, these people, they would hear gossip and they would come to me and speak to me as if it was truth. And I would always think like, this is so bizarre. <laughs> why, why are you not more skeptical of, of this information? Yeah. And as opposed to going, yeah, that's, that's real. That really happened. Um, so, you know, but it, it's, it's, uh, I think there also, you know, can be emotions tied up in it. So if they feel like another parent was somehow, um, you know, treated inappropriately or something that, you know, they kind of get on this kind of David and Goliath thing and like, you know, we're going to support David and you're the mean head of school. And so you're Goliath and, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Right. So there's, there's other stuff that's, that's wrapped up uh, into it, but I, you know, I think one of the ways that we can, we can do that though, is, is to help one another so that when we were talking to one another, we, you know, get a, a habit that we could develop is going, well, what might else be a reason for that? Or what might else, mm -hmm. you know, uh, be going on or what, um, <clears throat> Or, or something like that, but we could, we can help each other in that way. And I think that's one way that schools could really help. But unfortunately, this is the other thing is that education in general has been really focused on right answers. Mm -hmm. We're about assessment and evaluation. And so you're going to get a test and you have to have the right answers. There's not a lot of room and time for wonderings mm -hmm. about things. Yeah. So wonderings and kind of living in, in the, in the space of, ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, uh, Laura, and I know we've talked about this sort of this, this edge of simplifying so that we can access it. We being someone like me and simplifying it so much that it's wrong. Right. So I want to sort of walk that line carefully. And the thing that I'm wondering about, and I notice just from my own work, like my own human work is if I'm struggling with you know, a multiple narrative and one that comes up for me a lot. And I've shared this with both of you and on the podcast is this, this wrestling with being an expert and a novice. And Laura, you and I just had a conversation a few days ago about how I've never been able to embrace the idea of expert because I ask lots of questions and I don't want to give that part of me up. And so what I'm, what I would love to hear you talk about is when I sit with that paradox and I wrestle with it less now because I just sort of, it's there, right? Like I know it's there and I'm okay with it. 
But like when when someone starts to wrestle with that binary thinking, like what's going on? Like, is that, are we wrestling with that? Dis- like, what's the source of this discomfort? Is it because it's a habit of binary thinking? Is it the way in which we've learned? Like, I'm just trying to dig in a little bit to like, what's going on with the body and the brain when we're like, th- and maybe that's not the right question, but like, I'm just curious, like, what is it that's going on that's making me so uncomfortable and why can't I flip a switch and not be uncomfortable with that? Does that make sense? Yeah. And again, I think that goes back to like the a question. It does make sense. It goes back to the question that I think, again, philosophers have been dealing with forever, which is humans are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. Right. So they need to know what's going to happen. Like there's so everything we talk about is about, we need to know what the prediction is going to be Yeah. about things. Right. Yeah. And um, so we want, we want something that's very sort of concrete. And so there are different ways that we handle that. Right. So we will, we will uh, adopt um, narratives, certain beliefs around, um, you know, God or gods or or whatever, right? Because it provides a reason for, as to why things are happening. So there's some certainty there. And so mm-hmm. then if I just do this and I pray hard and I'm a good person, mm. then I will get these good things and these things will will happen to me. I think it's trying to figure out like how to survive yeah. mm. in an uncertain world when we, you know, um, we have, uh, we're, we're aware uh, mm-hmm. of ourselves you know, and maybe in a way that not all other living creatures are aware of themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say that we're exceptional because I, I don't, I mean, yeah. we also love to tell ourselves um, <laughs> narratives. Yeah. That are just energy. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. And that actually then influence like how we ask questions and that kind of mm. thing. And so yeah. I don't want to say, you know, focus on human exceptionalism, but it's, it's so, so I think what it does is it creates when we don't have certainty, I mean, think about when, you know, you're in a place in your life where maybe, uh, you know, like I've been in places in my life where, um, I, I know I need to quit a job. I don't know what I'm going to do next. And on top of it, we're not sure where we're going to live. And it's like, wow, that is really, that is a big place of uncertainty. So then you're just, you know, you're trying to figure out, well, what do you, what do you do? And you have to, you want to, you need to problem solve and problem solve and problem solve. And sometimes what you just need to do is let time pass a bit. Mm. Right. And, and to kind of sit with the yeah. uncertainty and the not knowing and yeah. be okay with that. But that's a very stressful uh, place yeah. for, for us to be. Yeah. So, I a, I, and I uh, think, Oh, I just want to say one really, one, yeah, one sorry, sorry. Before I forget. No, no, you no, have no all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. So the other thing is, though, too, you know, it's this interesting idea about the idea of living, um, you know, novice versus expert and kind of, I think, living in the in-between space of that, where you're always curious, but you're also a knowledgeable person at the same time. Mm. And I, what I have noticed about myself, because I live in a similar space, Mm -hmm. is that it, 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 what what can be difficult about living in the space is about how other people will perceive you in ding, living ding, in that ding. space. Can I just say mm. ding, it's, ding, ding? That's, mm-hmm. I think you're right, Laura. I think you're right. It's it's really not about my 
discomfort in being in the space. It's my discomfort with how other people may label me Yes, because I'm in that space. Is it because we're just naturally social beings that we're predisposed for human connection and social moments? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole reason, you know, E.O. Wilson talks about the whole reason that, that our human species survived as a species compared to other human species who are walking the earth around the same time is that we were social and we collaborated and we worked together. Interesting. Yeah. So we're I social have a, animals. Yeah. I have another question now. Mm-hmm. So Carrie talked about living in the binary, right? And, and wrestling with these paradoxes. So Carrie and I have talked about paradoxical thinking probably throughout the pandemic. It was probably one of the great spiritual awakenings that I've had. And once I started talking to her and she started talking to me, we started seeing paradoxes everywhere and like everywhere. And I had one memory of a Sunday. I was walking to get my matcha that I get every Sunday and Carrie was at um, her church service. And I don't remember exactly what the paradox was, but let's just say for, for this conversation, it was belonging to ourselves and belonging to everyone. You know, um, Brene Brown mentions the, um, Maya Angelou belonging everywhere and nowhere. That's when you truly belong. Thank you. So that was an example of a paradox that we've talked about a lot. And for a while, I couldn't really wrestle with it. I couldn't understand it. And then all of a sudden, as Carrie and I are talking about this, I finally understand and I finally embody it this. So where's that switch happening in our brains? Is it a brain basis to this that all of a sudden we're thinking in a binary way and then we're embodying paradoxical thinking in almost our everyday lives? And how do then leaders then shift from this binary to a yes and expansion paradoxical thinking? Well, I guess I, I don't see it as like a brain thing. I think we're, we're, so this is, you know, speaking of binaries, like we're very brain centric in mm-hmm. our society. Um, we like love our brains, but we <laughs> ignore our bodies. We ignore the fact that we're living in a situated experience um, mm-hmm. that, uh, so I guess I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily, you know, see, see it uh, as a thing that is happening in the brain. Plus we don't, we don't really have like one-to-one correlations between processes in the brain and behavior. Um, and that's one of the big misunderstandings, um, right now, you know, neuroscience is still young, um, as a field, but I, I think it's, um, I think to, to switch again, switch our habits around thinking it's, um, it is kind of having to, to help one another in things. So we don't just commiserate when people come to us and tell us a piece of gossip, we might ask questions, right? That can help other people that can help you. And it can help the other person to ask questions. Or if people are coming up with answers around things, you know, uh, ask questions. Okay. But what do you mean by that? The question, like, what do you mean by that? is huge. I just spent two hours in a neuroscience and philosophy salon, listening to a group of neuroscientists and philosophers talking about the meaning of representations. Mm. And, you know, they, there were no conclusions at the end of two hours there, there were no answers. Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, we, we have to keep, um, we have to ask more questions and some questions, which 
that are actually very basic again, like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by this word that you're yeah. using, you know, in this instance rep representation, because here's what I mean by it, but do you mean the same thing? And we often are talking to each other, but we're talking past one another because we're actually not, you know, the, the words don't, don't necessarily have the same meanings, but we, we, again, I think we're so we're, we're trained, um, particularly in, in education, it's years and years and years of behaving your way in an environment where it is very kind of top down kind of control. You're being evaluated. Here are the answers. You need to know these answers. I need to know that you know these answers. And that way of being, right? So, so we, we are designed to adapt to our environments and survive, whatever those environments may be. So it could be running from a tiger, but it could also be surviving in the boardroom to getting yeah. good grades in school, right? Yeah. So then that way of being in that school environment becomes our way of our, uh, our habit of thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, um, I remember one time Greer came home and he was talking about how, um, one of the, he, he asked one of the junior associates to write, um, a memo on some case law and the <laughs> junior associate. Okay. Said, well, how many pages do you want it to be? <laughs> Chris, like, I don't know. <laughs> like whatever the, <laughs> whatever it takes, <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. Right. And it's, but see, that is, that's a habit of thinking where you you're supposed to just do the right thing. You jump through these hoops and you get, you know, so it's, 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 it's not, unfortunately, our, much of our education system is not really conducive to, again, I, I feel like I'm kind of repeating myself, but to those wonderings and to those questions and yeah. people are afraid to ask questions because they're afraid to ask dumb questions, yeah. but I'm at a point now it's like, I'm going to ask you, like, I don't I'll just say, I don't understand that. Yeah. Can you explain to me what you mean? Because yeah. if I just sit here and try to pretend like I understand, then, we, you know, what am I really going to get out of this? And what are yeah. you really going to get out of this? Yeah. So I, I hear what you're saying. And it feels like there is a lot built in to our society, our schools, our structures that make it really difficult not to be binary thinkers, right? That it's the value is in the knowing not it's, it's in being right, not getting it right as Brene Brown reminds us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I guess the wondering I have Laura, and I mean, it's timely and I do a shameless plug of my book, right? Like I've tried to write a book about these in-between moments where I'm trying and it's one person's effort to offer some strategies and some thoughtfulness around how to better navigate these, in, to cultivate these in-between moments, not just quickly move through them like you were explaining earlier. So I guess with your experience, you know, with your, your sort of philosophical bent, if I could call it that with Montessori and your training, I'm just wondering, like, even with those structures and things in place, like what kinds of strategies do you recommend or offer like to individuals? Like I only know it because I've been, I've lived it. Right. So I know things work for me. And so what I'd love for our audience to hear from you is like, what are some simple strategies to start, to start shifting those habits, right. To be curious, to ask a question, to focus on process, not out. I'm just wondering like, what would you offer up 
as a couple of strategies? Well, the, the first thing I would do is um, try to learn to notice when you're in a space of discomfort. Mm. That, that's the first thing. Yeah. Because if we don't take the time to notice that and to go, oh, that's that space of discomfort, and then just kind of sit there, then mm. what we end up doing is behaving in our typical ways of trying to alleviate the anxiety, whatever that might be. Yeah. So noticing is, is like, I would say 70 or 80% of it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, um, like Jeffrey, uh, Schwartz, I, I don't know if he's still at, at UCLA, but he, he's, a um, uh, he, he does work on OCD mm. and which is really, really, really difficult to treat because you're just, you get into a loop, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and you can, and you, and the loop could be like, I have to snap my fingers all the time to keep the tigers away. And reason doesn't work. You can, you can say, but there are no tigers and people, and the person will say, yeah, but that's because I'm snapping my fingers all the time. Mm, right. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and we can rationalize like a lot of yeah. wackadoodle behavior. We yeah. really can. And, the, and if the smarter you are, the better you are at rationalizing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. We both raise our hands. Both raise our hands. <laughs> so, like... yeah. Right. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of stuff and you're yeah. like, okay, well, yeah. so, but in, in his treatment of OCD, he'll say, I think he said like 70% of it is recognizing the behavior and going, that is my OCD. And what that allows a person to do then also is to, uh, so you name it and then you get some distance from it. Right. So if, if you're able to recognize, like I'm in a space of discomfort or I am anxious about X, Y, Z, or because, uh, you know, of uncertainty or, I, whatever, it, you know, recognize it and then just kind of sit with it yeah, and be like, okay with it. Right. So then, so then you can go, okay, well that doesn't have to control me. So what do I really want to, what's the thing that I really want to do? Is it get away from this discomfort? Or maybe it's like, I'm uncomfortable because I really want to ask this question, but I'm afraid to, mm -hmm. you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So then you go, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to ask the question, yeah. right. Because that, that that discomfort, that feeling that will, you know, that, that will pass yep. and that will, yep. will go away. Yep. So, um, I, I think that that's, you know, that's one of the very big yeah. <laughs> strategies. Yeah. To do. And in, in your mind, is that Laura, cause I know we've talked about this cause you recommended this great book that's sitting over there about habits, habits of mind. Is that sort of that, that ability or or attempt and sometimes success to notice and name is that sort of the first steps to changing habits? I mean, is that what I you, think it is? Yeah, I think it is because you're and what you what then becomes the habit is the the noticing mm -hmm. and the stopping. Yeah, and then and then being able in that space to choose a different behavior or to mm. to you know to choose something to give yourself mm -hmm. the opportunity to do something different instead yeah. of engaging in the old way of being. And yeah. that allows you to change your habit yeah. over time. Who's the guy right, who said, different. who's the guy, who's the guy that said the space in between the stimulus and response is your, is your opportunity to make change. I'm trying to think of the guy who said that I can't, I'll think of it anyway. 
That really doesn't cool sound like quote. something Skinner said, but no, it's not Skinner. <laughs> I'll, I'll think of it. Go ahead, Danielle. I know you. Well, had a you question. um, when you were talking, I, I thought it was really interesting because drawing back to leadership theory and Carrie, you know, I'm a big fan girl of Tonkin 2013, especially with authentic leadership. I hear self awareness and I hear balanced processing as two key parts of this. And you know, Dr. Shaw, you I remember I think it was last residency at Hopkins. You presented on stress. And some stress has been something that I've been researching in my professional context um, for a number of years too. So what happens then in times of stress? I mean, I'm thinking with leaders during the pandemic, handling all different types of stress from uncertainty, from just even thinking about how we're going to operate during periods of social reckoning, how do we cultivate belonging? And then all of a sudden something else happens and whether it's just a challenge that we were unexpecting in our organizations, or maybe we did expect. But I would, I would think that, you know, when you are thinking about using, noticing, and then using that an opportunity for change, what happens when all of a sudden we're flooded with stress and we don't really know what to do? Well, I think, especially in those moments, we have to, you know, it, nothing really good is going to come from reacting. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, you know, um, I had a meeting with an organization last week um, and I won't name the organization that had like a, a racial incident occur at one of their conferences. And they then built up this equity statement and all this stuff, but everything that they did, the equity statement, it was all a reaction. And mm -hmm. so they actually didn't develop a, a real equity statement. They developed a reactive equity statement that then excluded <laughs> A whole other, you know, all other groups of people, disabled people, neurodivergent people, uh, and they, 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 they didn't see it. And so I think that, you know, authentic leadership involves being able to say, I need to think on this. Mm. Yeah. And because people are demanding answers right now. And you know, and that's the hardest thing about being, I think, a, a leader is that you have all these people who want you to make instantaneous decisions. And, um, and I, you know, not that I mean, okay, I'm going to quote Oprah. I can't believe I'm quoting her right now. But <laughs> oh, I, I love this. Yes, that's not like something I would normally do, but <laughs> I, 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 I just remember I, this always um, stuck with me years and years ago, like when she still had her talk show or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching it one time and she said that she said that with her own people um, on her show, like her, her crew that, you know, they would, they were constantly asking her uh, to make decisions. And she said, I just got into the habit of saying, I need to sleep on that. Mm. Yeah. And, and that, and that's real, right? Because that gives you the opportunity to to really uh, behave in a more authentic way, to really yeah. think about it and process. We need time to process things. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and I think what that can do too, is that even though the people around you are demanding, like, because they want you to make a decision to alleviate their uncertainty and their stress and their anxiety. Mm. But I feel like if they're, you know, um, to have a leader that is able to say, I hear you, I hear the stress, I need to sleep on it. I need to think about it. Yeah. And 
I, and not in a way of like, I'll think about it for six months, but like, just, you know, I need 24 hours to think about this or something, right. I'm, I'm going to feel more secure actually. Right. Then some sort of immediate, uh, reaction, reactive, um, decision. That's such a good, so that's a really, another really good example of a strategy, Laura, Laura, and I will say, um, as a faculty member and, you know, leader, I have noticed that I have started doing similarly. So when someone approaches me, I have trained myself or created a habit for myself that I don't make a decision on the spot. I say, I hear what you're saying. I'll listen to you. And I need X number of days to make that decision because the other thing I noticed, and I was talking about talking to somebody about this the other day is when I make a reactive decision, I'm also making a decision in a savior sort of mentality, Mm. which is, I think I need to save this person when in fact I may be doing that person a disservice because maybe I'm not the right person to step in, but I'm feeling like they need me to do something. Like I'm totally misreading. So anyway, so not to prolong this, but I, for anybody who's listening, just try it. The next time someone asks you for something, just say, I need a night to sleep on it. And I'm telling you that bring that, that empowers you to, to take that time that you need. Um, so I think that's a great, um, advice, Laura. So the quote, I just wanted to go back. It's between the stimulus and response. There's a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies, our growth and our freedom, Victor Frankl is the guy. So yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 So Mm -hmm. it just made me when you were talking about the slowing it down, that made me, made me think about, so didn't want to derail Mm -hmm. the conversation, but wanted to catch that. Yeah. No, that that's great. And, and again, I just want to emphasize that being doing, doing that is also how you do change the automatic. Yeah. How you Mm -hmm. change the habits. Yeah. So, but again, it, you know, that also it takes time and it's going to, it requires uh, more effort, more conscious, intentional control in a way. And that can be a little uncomfortable, but after, you know, I mean, give it 30 days, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll find that it's a lot easier and then it, it might become, you know, more of your kind of go-to response. I, I think another good response too, for leaders is just, just say like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. The transparency in the space too, that, you know, so, um, and to, again, to be okay with that and to be okay with, I don't know, but let's find out, let's mm-hmm. figure that out. Right. And let's, let's do it together. What I love about what both of you are saying, and just a side note, as the two of you are just going back and forth, I almost like I was in tears just from the expertise, the insight, like I'm sitting here watching two of my professors talk about this, these amazing strategies for leaders as I'm continuing to merge as a leader. So thank you both. I couldn't think of anything better than to sit on a Friday night and talk, talk to you both about this. I'm like, can we do this every week? But anyways, I think what I, what I liked, what, what you both are saying is the strategies of giving space, slowing down and the curiosity and the questions, and also the transparency saying being vulnerable. I don't know. Let's find out what a way to model this to someone else as well from, I just exited the classroom last year. I was teaching eighth grade and it was such an amazing way for me as a teacher to model, you know, I don't know, 
and, and watch and my students saying, oh, it's okay to say that you don't know. So I just wanted to put a moment of gratitude. I don't have a follow-up question. I know Carrie definitely does. I just had to say that because, you know, there's just so much I'm going to walk away with this weekend. So Carrie, why don't you continue the conversation with a question? No, that's, I mean, I appreciate that those kind sentiments and I love how you geek out on this stuff, Danielle. So that's, that's <laughs> awesome. I guess, I mean, the things that I grapple with, and I know Laura that you, I hear you saying like, it's, it's not just in the brain and we have this obsession with the brain that it is really, you know, it's fully embodied in, in multiple ways in ourselves. Like I, I hear that. The thing that I'm struggling with, and maybe partly why I really wanted to pick your brain, no pun intended, about these questions is that unfortunately, the reality, especially that you and I live in, and Danielle as a doctoral student live in, we're in a university setting that demands evidence. And it's not just any evidence, it's a particular kind of evidence. And so sometimes what I'm probing for is and maybe it's, maybe it's, it's for not, maybe I, it's a, I shouldn't be probing. Maybe it's the chatter that's keeping me do this, but I'm going to ask you nonetheless, which is I believe wholeheartedly in the conversation we're having. I wrote a book on it. I live it. I live the struggles and I have seen in my own life anecdotally that it works. How do we convince Mm -hmm. leaders at institutions like a university and just name whatever institution Like, how do we convince them that this is like, this is the real deal? Like, I completely have drunk the Kool-Aid on this and see it in my students. How do we get through to the people who hold the power and make the decisions? That's my big question, I guess. That is such a big question because I I know I'm um, sorry. I just had to throw it out there. (laughs) No, and I think it, but it's, it, it, it's a, it's a huge question and it's a question that we really need to be grappling with because it feels like what has happened, particularly in the U.S., is that higher education institutions have been taken over by <clears throat> a very neoliberal MBA mindset. And so now it's, you know, it, it's strange. I feel like that, um, uh, you know, and so on the, tuition has gotten more and more expensive across the U.S., right? And yet teaching is still not valued, mm. right? It's not, it's not valued. Ultimately, um, particularly um, R1 institutions, you know, they, they want you to bring in the millions of dollars for research because it helps their brand, but it also pays your salary because they don't want to pay your salary, yet they're making all of this money from, you know, tuition, and I feel like, you know, we're, we're coming from such a different perspective and a different mindset. And we, what I think what really needs to happen are these sort of broader conversations about what we value as a, as a society. And um, because personally, I look around daily or I go through my Twitter feed daily and, you know, see the what's happening in the world. And, you know, I mean, humans, we do have the ability to manipulate our environments and to, to co-construct our environments and, and meaning in our lives. Right. And, and I think this is it, this is what we've done. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, why, why have we done this? I mean, there are people that are still hungry. 
There are people that still don't have access to education. There are people that are homeless. There are people that are, um, you know, that, who just, who feel like they can't su succeed uh, because for whatever reason, because we are constantly judging everything um, and one another. I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, none of, in order for, there's a big gap between what is valued in higher ed institutions at the whatever administrative level versus I think what the people on the front lines who are teaching the classroom might feel. And I'm, I'm not sure how to bridge that until at some point we, we decide that we're not going to value corporatization of learning and we're not going to value money more than humanity. I, mm. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So you should edit this out. Am I going to get fired? But I'd like, it's no. just, <laughs> I'm just being honest. You're not going to get, I mean, you're but, not going to get fired. <laughs> I don't, yeah, you're not going to get fired. <laughs> so with all the societal pressures, the organizational institutional pressures, you see leaders that are emerging that says, I can build these skills. I can expand. This is a loaded question. I don't know. You, you might not have the answer in the last couple of minutes, but what is one thing that we as leaders can do to disrupt this? Well, I mean, I think um, maybe start looking at what you value, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. how are, how are you as leaders? Are you contributing to the game as it exists? Or are you looking at the game and going, Hmm, how can I actually change the game? Because if I have one more person tell me we have to teach people how to play the game, why? Why do we have to do that? And why aren't we focusing our attention on changing the game itself? And if you're in a position, a leadership position, and you have opportunity to do that, I mean, please take it. Hmm. I love that. I just wrote down, what do you value and how are you contributing to the game? That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, it makes me think, um, just as a teaser coming up, we have, um, an interview with Christine Dercole from Peloton and she's a, you know, she's a, one of the best trainers at Peloton and super famous and tons of followers. And she has turned the fitness industry on its end because she focuses on being calm and still and in your body and, even while you are powering up the most gigantic stressful hill ever, right? Like she really gets you to manage those moments and to not focus on the numbers, but to be in the journey. And so maybe, I don't know, the more I think about this, this conversation, I feel like the call to action for us is to like find our group who wants to turn education on its side. Right. And, and sort yeah. of, I don't know mirror what, what others have done in other industries. So, mm -hmm. because I, I will tell you this, even, even with, uh, in Montessori, right. Who, again, the whole point of, of her educational system was to really create, um, well, what well, was to, was to create peace through education and not, not, not peace where there's no war, but like peace where people really know how to proactively collaborate and in a way that is, is good for uh, not just humans, but for everything, because the interconnected, interconnectedness of everything in, in 
the world, the universe is very much a part of um, Montessori pedagogy and curriculum. But even with that, people will come in, they'll discover Montessori and they get so excited. And then it turns into Montessori for capitalists. <laughs> and so that's why I say we have to keep looking yeah. um, at what yeah. we value and, 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 you know, how yeah. is that really helping anything? So, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you asked that question, Laura, because I, that has come up for me in multiple ways in different contexts, this idea of remembering what you value. And maybe that's a, you know, there's so many ways that you can do sort of mining for your values activities, even on your own, just to sort of identify what your values are. Um, even just looking at a list, for example, and sort of seeing what resonates with you. And it's interesting to me that you bring that up because I have noticed that once you identify those values, if you ask yourself, how are you honoring those values, right? Or how are you ignoring those values? Things become crystal clear, like, oh my gosh, like, of course that feels uncomfortable because I've just ignored that I am all about curiosity and that is rubbing me the wrong way. So, so I think Danielle, for the end of this podcast are to add to our, our, um, playbook that we've been talking about this idea of, you know, thinking about your values and identifying one or two or three, um, values that, you know, that you really could live by or do live by. So, um, so Dr. Laura Shaw, um, you did not disappoint, uh, amazing conversation. Thank you so much for the great, uh, questions and thoughts and, um, yeah, I just wrote down some strategies. So I'm super excited to, to try some of this out. So um, any, we like to let our, um, ask our guests if there's anything like last comments you want to make that maybe we didn't cover in the interview that you wanted to share with our audience before we wrap. Um, I, no, I don't think so. But I do, I do want to say, I want to thank you. I want to thank, thank both of you for this and for this work, but also um, Carrie for just all the work that you do hmm. and your, um, your commitment to being true to self and the values that you hold. And, um, it's just, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Hmm. Oh my goodness. So nice. And so unexpected. I that. So, yeah. Well, thank you both. It's, I feel so lucky that, um, I mean, I love podcasting for lots of reasons, but I love it mostly because I get to talk to really interesting people like the two women I'm looking at on Zoom. So so thanks to both of you. Um, this has been another episode of Tell Me Lit This, and I am your co-host, Carrie Borkowski, here with Dr. Laura Shaw and my co-host, Daniel Scorano. So thanks, everybody. Slow down you. so sincere, um. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. 
head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.